0: Well, good morning, everybody. We are about to start flying through Genesis. Um, we we really are. Um, the first three chapters of Genesis are just so dense. They're so theologically rich. Um, they're so foundational that it's necessary to take much time in them uh, to just sit and steep in what God... Uh, planned and in what God is planning and what God is doing uh, to see who God is um, in those first three uh, chapters of Genesis. And obviously, uh, even spending as long as we did in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we had to pick and choose what to talk about. Uh, There's simply too much. Uh, If you read Genesis critically, especially those first three chapters, uh, you ought to be flooded with questions. Too many questions to answer in a series of seven, eight sermons even. Uh, Too many questions to answer in a lifetime. Uh, If you're really reading through Genesis critically, if you're thinking about it theologically, if you're thinking about the riches of who God is, what he's done in creation, what the fall really means for us, the significance of it, uh, that's a lifetime of study because you're going to be studying the entire scriptures. And that's what we want uh, that is a goal for us, is to see you so um, intrigued by the scriptures. Uh, we don't want you just to find uh, some uh, truth that, that is, is good for you now. We do want that. We want you to see truth, uh, hear the gospel every morning. We don't want you to come to church just to be fed, though. Uh, we want you, by the sermons, not only to be fed, but to become hungry. Uh, to become hungry for the word, to become hungrier uh, for righteousness and truth that is found only in uh, God's revelation of himself in Scripture. And so in Genesis, we see that, and, and it's, it's too much. It's too much to drink in. Um, uh, And so we've been picking and choosing what we want to talk about, how we want to see Genesis. We think we're focusing, we we pray that we are, we believe we're focusing on the main thing, and that is the gospel of a God who creates and, and, and who restores his creation. And so we've looked at God. And so, in Genesis 1, we looked at the fact that God creates, that God is this king who speaks, and by his word, all things are created. God created all things good. You cannot read Genesis 1 and come away with any other conclusion that creation is from God, and it is good. It's, in fact, when humanity is in it, it's very good. And so God creates humanity to be very good. We see this in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, we see that God interacts with his people in a covenantal way, that the the God that we serve is our Lord and that he he walks with us in our midst, that he places us specifically in his place, the garden. And when he does that, we, as his people, are fulfilled in relationship with him. And so God calls us to be human, and he does it uh, in, in a few ways. And, and, and some phrases that hopefully you remember from Genesis 1 through 3 are things like this. God told uh, humanity, blessed Adam and Eve, blessed humanity and said, Be fruitful, multiply. God gave humanity dominion over the earth. God told Adam and Eve to work the garden and keep it. This is dominion language. So God has called his people to be his children, to have his responsibility of dominion over the earth, and to be fruitful and multiply. So in essence, we get this this statement, this, this thesis statement of what it is to be human. It's to reign over the earth as little kings under God's reign. It's to be his children and to continue in his creative work through procreation, through being fruitful and multiplying on a physical level. And in a spiritual level, as believers, we see being fruitful and multiplying as Doing exactly what the Cottons are doing in Spain and what they've charged us and what Scripture charges us to do here. To make disciples. To be about, I love the phrase that was in the prayer focus, great commission ministry. This is not something that missionaries are called to do alone. This is what we are called to do as believers. We are called to be indigenous missionaries in our homes, in our communities, to be fruitful in the gospel and to multiply in the gospel by seeing conversion through evangelism and disciple making. And so this is what God has called us to be. This is the essence of what it is to be human. And then we see in Genesis 3, and this is something that we couldn't talk about, even though we spent a lot of time in Genesis 3. What we see in Genesis 3 is that When we as people are complicit in sin, when Adam and Eve believe the lie over the truth, that's what Paul says in Romans 1, right, is sin is the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Eve and and Adam, they exchange God's truth for the lie that the serpent tells them and not just that, for the lie that they want to believe in their own hearts. That they can be like God. God, and they eat, and they sin, and they are cursed. And when you look at the curse, it is not arbitrary. You know, sometimes as a parent, as many of you know, we had a baby in a van. Probably more difficult than that is now being the parent of three children, um, and even more specifically, our second child. Um, Hey, look. He does it, I'm calling him. <laughs> Don't feel bad for him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but sometimes, our, our son Anderson, he, he's, he's prone to fits of what can only be called rage. Um, and he acts out, and in the, the moment that he acts out, I, there's this, this curious mix of both rage welling up in me um, the desire to just laugh because it's it's funny, it's angering. I don't know what to do, and more often than not, my punishment is random. It's just, oh yeah, you can't have that. It wasn't even a part of it. Uh, go to your room for thirty-seven minutes. I just don't want you here. It's random. Like there's there's the human element of just being. Filled with parental, I think righteous anger. Um, and, and every parent that's laughing is laughing because they know. And every kid is, that's laughing is laughing because they, they think it's funny that parents are so um, sporadic and ridiculous. But the truth is, you are angering. Children, hear this. <laughs> We love you, but you are angering. And sin angers God. Sin breaks God's heart. Sin causes God to act even in, to look at his people in derision. I love in Psalm 2. The Bible says that the kings of the earth conspire against God. Their hearts are sinful, and they're conspiring against God, and and God laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. These kings are coming at me. I'm God. You have little armies. I have legions of angels that I don't even need. He laughs at them, just like Anderson tries to overpower me and hurt me in his anger. And it's laughable. And so God has this mix, but unlike us, God is very specific. He's very reasoned. He's very sovereign in his punishments. And if you look at the curse, just just look at the screen. It's not random. God said to humanity, have dominion over the earth. We're going to work backwards in the curse. And we're not going to spend much more time in it. But just listen. God says, have dominion over the earth. Work it and keep it. And then when he curses Adam, do you remember what he says? Curses the ground. It's it's going to fight against you. You're going to labor over it. It's It's going to be your undoing. You're not going to work the garden and keep it anymore. This is not going to be a joyful work that you do this is labor and the ground is going to fight against you you're not going to be a benevolent king over the earth and the earth is not going to lovingly respond for your flourishing anymore and then god says to humanity be fruitful and multiply this is what it means to be human this is at least a part of it and then the curse to the woman she's not eve yet she's the woman the curse of the woman. In childbearing, I will increase greatly your pain. Like that. Be fruitful and multiply. It's directly cursed. The very things that make us human are cursed. You could even, and, and I, I, I debated putting this up there um, because of how long it would take to unpack. I'm not going to unpack it. I'm just going to say, it. if you want to think about it, great. Um, but God. God's design and creation in, in marriage, in all these things, is that there is um, there's a, a, a hierarchy of equals. There's a first among equals, the one who uh, is responsible for, held accountable for the relationship, the one who is given authority. And so the, the, the key example that we're given is that God essentially says, look, have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and make sure that you remember who God is and who the creature is. Make sure that you do not forget that I am the creator. You see that tree over there? Don't eat it. Be my people. I will be your God. That is what it means to be human. And in the curse to Eve, we see this weird disruption of the marriage relationship where Eve is, the woman is always after the man and he will be over him. This isn't a loving uh This isn't a loving authority. This is is broken relationship where no one sits or rests in what their role is meant to be. And it does mirror our relationship with God. No longer do we humbly submit to God. But our hearts are against him. Everything about who we are is broken. Sin disrupts God's good design for human beings. So we look at the curse, and it makes sense. And then if you work backwards in the curse, we get this hope of of Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, we see that God curses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and the offspring of the woman. This offspring is singular. And this singular offspring, he Will crush the serpent's head. Will bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel. There's hope. Right there in the curse. We see that God's redemptive work begins with the promise of a conquering seed, of this offspring of the woman who will come and who will break the curse. Who will, in essence, undo all that the curse and that sin has done. Who will make us human again. This is the hope. And so, the title of this sermon, uh, the, the, por- the purpose of this sermon, is it's the God who is coming. Um, and it's about God who is coming. He's coming in his redemptive work, we see. but But he's coming... To us. And we're going to explore that. See, the Bible says that in, in, in 3.15, which we just read, that the, the, the offspring of the woman is going to destroy the offspring of the serpent. That God is going to send his redemptive seed, his conquering seed. And so naturally, the Bible takes off from there and starts looking for the seed. And so let's look at our text. It's Genesis 4. Through five. That's right, two chapters. But like I said, we're very selective in what we can and can't talk about. And there's a greater picture that I, that I, I believe we'll see and that we're going to, to explore as we look at the scope of these two chapters. Uh, We're going to read specifically from chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and then the last two verses. And in a home group, you're going to unpack the significance of Genesis chapter 4. But for now, we're going to be in chapters 4 and 5. And so, if you would stand with me as we read the Word of God. And now, remember what we just said that the offspring of the woman. Will conquer. Doesn't this make sense? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she had appointed God or for she said God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh at that time the people began to call upon the name of the Lord pray with me God your word is good and it is rich unsearchable are your ways unsearchable is your love but you give us your spirit. And your spirit gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, and believe. Help us to believe and to know the unsearchable depths, of the riches of love that we have in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen. You can be seated. There's a lot to unpack here. and So naturally, <laughs> we're going to talk about genealogies. Uh, a, a while ago, when we were looking at the layout of Genesis, I didn't know when things would fall. Um, I didn't know when uh, Milo would be born. But I knew that I really wanted to preach on genealogies. I really wanted to preach this particular text, because um, <clears throat> because genealogies can be really boring, um, and they can be really misused, but they're really actually quite interesting, quite exciting, and quite important if you're going to understand what's going on, especially in the Old Testament. And so I loved it. When, when, when in seminary, when I studied... Uh, It was a hermeneutics class, and we were looking at what God was doing, how we were seeing types of Jesus, how we were seeing um, people who were pointing to both in their actions and in their lives to what Jesus would do in a greater way. Um, I I just fell in love with genealogies. I fell in love with the Old Testament. And so I I really just wanted to preach on genealogies. Um, And so here we are in a sermon on genealogies. And we're going to look at three things, the purpose of genealogies, the end of genealogies, and the hope of genealogies. And as we do that, um, I hope that you will see how good genealogies really are, how amazing God is. So the first thing we're going to look at is the purpose of genealogies. And we've already talked about this. We've already... um, you may not realize it, but we've already stated the purpose for genealogies. And you're saying, well, why are we talking about genealogies here when we just read a story about Cain and Abel? Well, like I said, we're reading chapters 4 and 5. And if you look just really quickly at chapter 5, it says, this is the book of generations of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, male and female. He created them and blessed them and named them man, and they were created. When Adam lived... 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and image, named him Seth. And then Seth begets Enosh, and then Enosh begets so-and-so. We cannot read the whole text, but I do encourage you to read it. So right in Genesis chapter 5, we get genealogy, but what we don't see is that Genesis chapter 4 is essentially genealogy too. And here's the purpose of genealogy. It's found in that verse, 315, that we explained. The conquering seed of the woman is coming. All right, there's curse and there's hope. If you remember, Brad used that term proto-evangelum, the first gospel, the first glimmer of hope, the first promise of redemption, and it's coming in the form of a seed of the woman. And so naturally, what are we going to do? We're going to look for that seed. And so in Genesis chapter 4, we see that there's, here, here's the first seed of the woman, Cain and Abel. And so the question you would have to ask if you were reading this like a story, if you were reading this for the first time without preconceived notions of what the point of the story of Cain and Abel is, without trying to read yourself into the story of Cain and Abel. But if you read it as just the next chapter of this story, what, would you say, what you would say is God promises Adam and Eve redemption through the seed. Here's a seed. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the promise that God has made and it's about to be fulfilled. Immediately, Eve has a son. His name is Cain. Maybe it's Cain. She has another son, Abel. Maybe it's Abel. And so then we read this story, and we look at it, even from the context now, reading back into it from the New Testament, and we see that Abel was a man of faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel, Abel acted out of faith and gave a good sacrifice to God. God is pleased with the sacrifice of of Abel. God is not pleased with the sacrifice of Cain. Perhaps Abel is the one who will make the sacrifice that appeases God, that causes God to redeem ultimately his people. He seems like a good option. Cain, maybe not so much. His sacrifice isn't that good. And so if you're reading this, there's hope in this moment in in Abel. But then something terrible happens. Cain murders him. It's not Abel. Abel is not our hope. And so we can read the story of Cain and Abel and we can say, if I make good sacrifices like Abel, God will be pleased with me and I guess there's a sense in which that's true. It's not the ultimate sense, though. The ultimate sense is that there's somebody who's going to make a good sacrifice on our behalf. It looked like it was going to be Abel, but Cain killed him. He's dead. Cain is cursed and cast out. So what do we get? Another seed. God blesses Adam and Eve again with Seth. And so then we get this genealogy in chapter 5. And so we what genealogies are is tracing the seed looking for that promised seed. Okay, and so God gives Cain and Abel, it's not them. So God gives them Seth. And then we get what? A genealogy. Where does this genealogy end? Look at Genesis 5 chapter or Genesis 5 verse 32. Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to talk about Noah in great detail. But what Noah becomes is a blip in the genealogy in search of the seed. The first blip was Cain and Abel. You'll talk about them in home group. Then we get Noah. Is Noah the one? God calls to Noah and says, Look, you're in the midst of a wicked generation. I want you to build an ark. That ark will be the vessel of my salvation. And through you and your obedience, through your faith... I will save my people. You know the story. Noah and his family, they're on the ark. God saves them. Maybe Noah is the one who's going to restart. The curse is broken through. Oh, Noah does some pretty bad things because he's a sinful man. And all of a sudden, we we can't look at Noah as our hope. And we want to say, well, we should be like Noah, believing even when everyone else doesn't believe. And to an extent, that's true. But Noah's not good enough. He's not good enough to to fulfill the promise. And so then Noah dies. And if you were to move forward enough, uh, chapter 11, Noah dies. And what do you get? More genealogy. The genealogy stops with Abraham. He's the next blip. He's the next possibility. This time it's a big possibility. God covenants with Abraham in a unique way. Abraham looks like he might be the one. You guys know the story of Abraham, right? What's his big sin? He's scared. So scared that he tells the Egyptians that his wife is his sister. God says, no, that cannot be it. Abraham is not the one. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, genealogy. David, genealogy. The purpose of genealogy is for us as people who are reading scripture to be looking for the seed. And God in his word interrupts that genealogy every time we see someone who's promising. And if you don't believe it, if you're thinking, maybe that's just kind of academic conjecture. Look at the end of genealogies. That's the next thing. The end of genealogies. Uh, if you were paying attention to the screen during the offering, you would have seen uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, let's, let's not read Luke chapter 4 because that was up there. Let's actually read together um, Matthew chapter 1. Why side to say together. Just flip there and I'll read it and you can follow along. Um, let's read Matthew chapter 1. And hopefully, uh, thanks to Andrew Peterson, I won't mess up any of these names. But if you look through the Old Testament, every major figure is set apart by genealogy. Every major figure, save one. A priest king named Melchizedek. That's a little teaser, right? Like... It's like the end of a Marvel movie. Stick around after the credits. Get ready. Melchizedek is coming, and he is great. Um, So, genealogy, hero, fallen hero, genealogy, hero, fallen hero, genealogy, so on. And here we come to Matthew chapter 1. And how does Matthew start his gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, or Abraham was the father of Isaac. There's Andrew Peterson ruining me. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Rahab, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azer, Azer the father of Zodak, Zodak the father of Akum, Akum the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathin, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. And guess what? If you look at this genealogy and Luke's genealogy to Jesus, that's it. There are no more genealogies in scripture. Because there's no more need For genealogies, Jesus is the promised seed. He is the end of genealogies. He is the one. We look at his story and what we see is that in him there is no sin. He's not like Abel. He doesn't die and stay dead. He's not like Cain. He's not a murderer. He's not like Abraham. He's not a liar. He doesn't doubt God. He's not like Moses. He's not a murderer who can't control his temper. He's not like the adulterous David or his children. He is True, he is pure, he is perfect, he is righteous. He is the seed. Done. No more need for genealogy. No more need for tracing out lines. Jesus has come. He's the end of genealogies. What's interesting is when you read that Luke 4 account, and I encourage you to read it, on your own, what you'll see he's also the beginning of genealogies. Uh, Matthew decides to start with Father Abraham. Luke starts with Jesus and traces all the way back to God. Well, Jesus is God. And so the genealogy begins with Father God, with the Godhead, with the Trinity of which Jesus is part. And it ends with Jesus. He is the first and the last. He is the fulfillment of genealogy. He's the beginning and the end of God's redemptive work in the earth. Genealogies end with Jesus. He's the final blip. He's not a blip anymore. He's the one. And so in that, in genealogies, in all of this, there should be great hope. There's hope in genealogies, and that's what we're going to look at now is the hope of genealogies. And this is the hope of genealogies. If you look at them, if you look, especially that genealogy in Matthew, if you read through the genealogies in Genesis, if you read through the genealogies in Chronicles, and if you look at them in light of the fact that they're pointing us to a promised seed who will conquer, and that they find their fulfillment in Jesus, it, it, that, that Jesus is the point, you begin to see some amazing truths God fills up his genealogies intentionally with broken people. That there are no heroes before Jesus. Look, it feels good to read a genealogy, to scour it, and to think that the point is maybe you'll find some nugget, some verse about a guy who will inspire you to Pray a prayer for a set period of time, and maybe God will bless you indeed. I don't know, and then you can market it and make this empire up. Maybe that, that, that's encouraging, I guess. It makes you feel maybe it's helpful to read a genealogy and try and count back the days and the years uh, until the beginning of the earth, and, and you might want to read a genealogy and look and ask yourself how old the, the earth is. Fine, good, go for it. I'm not against that. Just remember what the actual purpose and the hope in genealogies is, is that it's pointing to Jesus. All of these people who are blips, Cain and Abel, are the first story. And what do we see right away? That if, if our hope is in these humans, these human blips, then we're in big trouble. Because in this genealogy, we have liars, murderers, prostitutes, Moabites. That doesn't mean much to you, but to an Israel, a Moabite woman? Slow down. And God orchestrates that. All of it. The hope is this, that It cannot be a human. It must be God. God enters into the genealogy. He enters into the brokenness. He enters into the curse, and he squashes it. Our hope is in Jesus. The hope of genealogies is this. And look, life is hard. And if you ever stop to think about This collection of people, even right here in this room, right now, where we started, where we came from, I think about that with my wife a lot. Um, I'm I'm a first-generation American. My mom was born in Jamaica. My dad was born in Trinidad. I was born in an Air Force base in Homestead, Florida that doesn't exist anymore, or at least a hospital that doesn't exist. Uh, My wife... Traces her ancestry back to people who signed the Declaration of Independence. She's from New Jersey. <laughs> I'm from Florida. I moved to DC, metropolitan area. We ended up at Campbell, Campbell, like Bowie's Creek, Campbell, <laughs> together. If genealogies tell us anything, they tell us that our sovereign God superintends all of human history. That he has worked together. Even, you know, God doesn't just enter into the story when, oh, this Moses dude, he looks great. I'm going to work with him. This Abraham guy seems pretty great. I'm going to work with David. You know, that's not what it is. Oh, here's this figure. I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to him. What genealogies tell us is that God orders every person that comes before them so that they would be born in the time and place that they were born, so that they could be who they were, so that ultimately we would have Jesus in the Roman Empire in Bethlehem. That's crazy. And God superintended every little detail. Your lives are not random, they are purposed and they are planned by a sovereign God who loves you. You should take hope in that. And then the other hope. There's so much. We've kind of hinted at it. There was no figure good enough to save himself or his people. And so God had to come. That's the title of the sermon The God Who Is Coming. He came. He entered into history. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He did what we could not do. No one in this room is good enough to save themselves. All of us. Are lost and hopeless, dead in our sin. But Jesus has come. That's not the title of the sermon, is it? The God who came. It's the God who is coming. Here's the big hope that we wait for God came. We see it in the genealogy, and that it ends with Jesus. He is coming back. What He started, He will finish. And so for you, the call is to put your hope in Jesus because none of us is good enough to save himself. None of us is righteous. None of us seeks after God. None of us would have planned it this way, but God sovereignly and lovingly out of his goodness did. And there is hope in him and he is coming if you will put your trust in him. We're getting ready to sing a song that sums it up. The song is that Jesus paid it all. Jesus did all of it on our behalf. The genealogies point to him. The stories remind us of our desperate need for him. The story of our lives point to the goodness of a God who has superintended all things for us and on our behalf. And the stories of our lives point to a people who are desperate and who need Jesus. So as we sing this song together, um, hear the words, hear the truth in it. If you've not trusted in Jesus, put your trust in him. If you look at your life and you say it's a mess, how could a loving God do this? Understand that a loving God has ordered these things. He's in control of these things. And he's done all these things to bring you to this place in this time so that you could hear this truth that Jesus loves you so much that he died on the cross for you and that he's coming again to make right all that is wrong. Put your faith in him. For those of you who believe, be renewed in your faith. Remind yourself, you're not good enough. You are not to imitate those who came before. You are to trust in Jesus and imitate him. Let's pray together. God, this story, history, is your story. From beginning to end, and in every little detail, in every begat, you are present and working and willing for your glory for our good. And so I pray that we would trust in Jesus, the end of genealogies. We would see in Jesus the hope, not just of genealogies, but of of all history, for all people who will believe. And that we will believe that our hearts will be turned towards you, that we will imitate Christ. Thank you that you have sent the conquering seed and that the serpent is crushed let us now praise you who paid our debt who reversed the curse in the name of Jesus Amen